Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, where we're touching the important issues and not our faces, sanitizing our hands and not the harsh realities, and bringing you Israel without the 14-day quarantine. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. And I'm Margot Nykirk. And today we're speaking about a unique topic in tandem with the release of Israel Policy Forum's newest study, In Search of a Viable Option, which was co-authored by Evan and with Dr. Shira Efron, and also has a foreword written by Ambassador Daniel Shapiro. The study analyzes seven potential outcomes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On our last episode, we spoke about this new report's broader purpose, and in the coming weeks, we're going to take a closer look at each of the seven approaches in the study. Today, we're going to dive into the Jordanian option, and we'll explain in a moment what that means with a special guest, Nimrod Novik. Nimrod Novik is Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow. He was also the Senior Advisor on Foreign Policy to the late Shimon Peres, during which time, and I think most important to our topic today, he was involved in secret talks between Israel and Jordan. Nimrod is currently a senior associate at the Economic Cooperation Foundation, or ECF, and is a member of the Executive Committee at Commanders for Israel Security. Nimrod also maintains close contacts with the Jordanian, Egyptian, Saudi, and Palestinian security establishments and other relevant players. So, well-connected guy. Thanks for joining us, Nimrod. Thanks for having me. So, Nimrod, you were personally involved in what was probably the closest the Jordanian option has ever come to being achieved. What exactly does the Jordanian option entail, and where do you fit into this story? The initial formulation of the Jordanian option was basically that it is better for Israel to deal with Jordan about the future of the West Bank and Gaza rather than uh, deal with what was at the time a terrorist organization, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. We're talking about the 1980s. Uh, One has to remember that in the mid-1980s, there was a change uh, in government in Israel from a long reign of Likud, initially under Menachem Begin, eventually Yitzhak Shamir. Uh, Both of them have no intention of changing the status quo on the West Bank, whereby uh, Israel has occupied it since 67. With the change of government, uh, came into office a prime minister named Shimon Peres. That was in 1984. His idea was very different, and his idea was that Israel must and its occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, release itself of that responsibility. And he was looking for ways for a partner for that endeavor. And that's where we started the secret negotiations with, at at that time, the father of the current king, uh, at that time, uh, the late uh, King Hussein. Where I come into the story, I'll illustrate it with an anecdote. I have a fairly good record as a driver of decades. And in all these decades, only once I caused a car accident. When I rammed my car uh, into the uh, vehicle of the uh, U.S. Uh, Secret Service, escorting the then uh, U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz during the term of President Reagan, who was about to leave Israel for Amman, Jordan. And just moments before I rammed my car into his, we got uh, intelligence information that King Hussein was about to announce that he's shedding all responsibility for the West Bank and Gaza, that he wants nothing else to do with it, that he's fed up with the efforts to conclude the deal with Israel, and that he is basically saying, bye-bye, Palestine. We were quite alarmed. Uh, we realized that without King Hussein and Jordan, we don't have a viable partner uh, for these negotiations. At the time, the PLO was now not in the mood of recognizing Israel or negotiating with us. And the Arab world as a whole was under three restrictions established in 1967, 
no negotiations, no peace, and no recognition of Israel. And as a result, over a phone call between the Prime Minister, Shimon Peres, and myself, I was instructed to quickly draft a note for sec- the secretary to take over to Amman and present it to King Hussein. And I ran to the office, drafted the note, read it on the phone to Peres, signed his name, which I usually did, and, and dra- drove my car trying to catch up with him before he takes off and delivering the note. It was useless, it didn't help, and the king the day after made his announcement. What was the background? In the background was a year or so of secret negotiations between ourselves and King Hussein. We were trying to find a formula whereby the king will represent not only Jordan, but also the Palestinians in negotiations with Israel, and that the result of the negotiations will be some sort of Jordanian control over the West Bank. Whether that will be a federation, confederation, just the Hashemite kingdom as such, and it has another another, uh, faction, we didn't know, and it was really not our business. It was something between the king and Palestinians. But those negotiations lasted for a very long time. The king didn't feel free to make such a deal without the green light from his two powerful and threatening neighbors, Syria to the north and Egypt to the south. And it took a long time for us to mobilize the U.S. to put the pressure on Egypt and for us to mobilize then the Soviet Union to put the pressure on on Syria. And the result was that on the 11th of April, 1987, the king, unbeknown to us, showed up for a meeting with uh, Shimon Peres, as I said, unbeknown to us, with a green light from the two uh, neighbors. And and the the so-called London Agreement was signed between the two of them, whereby uh, the two parties agreed that an international conference will launch negotiations whereby Jordan will represent the Palestinians. There was an Israeli domestic political side to this also, because the London Agreement, as we know, didn't come to fruition. And at that point, Shimon Peres was just the foreign minister, not the prime minister, correct? Precisely. During the year of negotiations, we had uh, the famous or infamous rotation, whereby the foreign minister Shamir became prime minister and Paris became foreign minister. And the negotiations continues with the full knowledge of Shamir and his green light. However, when Paris presented him with a deal, uh, Shamir basically vetoed it. Sent his emissary to Washington to meet with, with Secretary Schultz, and the, the secretary responded, if the prime minister doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. That was the trigger for two developments. One was collapsed expectations in the territories yielded the, the, the late 1987 first intifada. And in the wake of his disappointment from uh, uh, Paris not being able to deliver the uh, London agreement and the intifada, uh, King Hussein uh, made the announcement I referred to earlier. So as someone who is involved in this process, do you feel that the Jordanian option was ever viable? And if it was viable back in the 1980s, what's changed today? Uh, in all candor, the, those of us on the Paris team had our doubts that what will start as a Jordanian option will end as a Jordanian option. We had a sense that Palestinian nationalism uh, is not going to be dormant for very long, accepting Jordanian hegemony, and that the moment will come when uh, they will de- demand far more independence within within the Jordanian uh, context or se- total separation. However, we also knew that the Israeli public was not ready for anything more dramatic 
than the negotiations with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Jordan, uh, certainly not with the PLO at the time. Shimon Peres was more convinced that you, this is a, a long-lasting proposition, that it can, be, it can be sustainable. As a matter of fact, he believed in it to his last days. I was with him a week before uh, he was hospitalized for the last time. This was not the conversation, but he, he never gave up on the uh, hope and assumption that a Jordanian partner in concert with the Palestinians in one form or, or another uh, might be a more stable proposition for Israel. What happened, though, are three processes. One, the same people who objected to the, to the uh, Jordanian option at the time, that is to say, Yitzhak Shamir and his Likud party, took them decades. Uh, and if you, if you, if you listen to, to those who surround our present prime minister, Netanyahu, in the prime minister's office, uh, you will hear echoes of longing for that option, planning on that option, and uh, designing that option. But that option has been transformed since. I'll come back to this in a second. The second thing that happened was that with time, the decision of King Hussein to divorce the West Bank and Gaza was enshrined in the Jordanian consciousness. Palestinian nationalism emerged as, as a powerful force, as we know. And uh, today, you will find unanimity among Jordanian elite uh, hostile to the idea. The best they would say is, once there is an independent Palestinian state, we might get into discussions with it about cooperation and maybe some kind of loose confederation, but as two independent entities. We are no longer going to represent the Palestinians. And that for them is a red line that I'm not privy to anyone of relevance who is willing to cross. The third thing that happened is that the view of what the Jordanian option is all about has been transformed dramatically. And when you talk about people who mention the Jordanian option today, they're not talking about Jordan representing the Palestinians and the West Bank becoming part of that independent, separate entity from Israel, but rather that Jordan is Palestine. There was a school of thought of, of, of that nature uh, all along in Israeli politics, but it was quite marginalized. Uh, but now that it is represented in the circles of the prime minister himself, uh, that means uh, these people envision turning Jordan from a Hashemite kingdom laid by the Hashemite family of the current king Abdullah into a, a, the, the state of Palestine, uh, given the majority of uh, Jordanian citizens are Palestinians, relatives of those of the West Bank, and they would like to see Jordan become Palestine, thus relieving them, us, of the responsibility of establishing an independent Palestinian state on the West Bank. You were turning it back to the situation in Israel, and I want to touch upon that. When you were Shimon Peres's advisor, the Jordanian option was the position of the political center left. After all, Paris was part of the Labour Party. But as you mentioned now, the Jordanian option is a right-wing position and is closely tied within the Netanyahu circle. So why has this changed? How has this changed? And why not just go along with a one-state outcome with annexation? The, the annexationist minority in Israel realized that they are swimming against the tide, uh, that the main body of Israeli public 
uh, with the with exception of extreme left and extreme right, is hostile to the idea of annexation. Not because they don't feel affinity uh, to the land of Israel, to the cradle of our civilization, uh, but they know that uh, this territory, this real estate, comes with a bonus of 2.6 million Palestinians, and incorporating them into Israel, they know uh, will undermine the Jewish character of the state. And therefore, even intuitively, even before diving into it, most Israelis are uh, hostile to the idea of annexation. As a result, the annexationists have been looking for ways to market their vision, their wish, their mission uh, in ways that are more palatable to the Israeli public. And therefore, instead of talking, for, for those of them who are advocating the Jordanian option, instead of talking about outright annexation, they speak about Jordan as the Palestinian state and the implied agenda, which is not legitimate to spell out and therefore is not spelled out, is that eventually a way will be found to ease out the, Israel, the, the, the West Bank residents, the 2.6 million Palestinians, into the, the East Bank, that is where it's now the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Some of them would tell you we will do it via economic incentives, some say via economic pressure, and some hint even less legitimate uh, approaches. But we are talking about ethnic cleansing. It's clear why this is a position that wouldn't be acceptable to the Jordanians or to the Palestinians today. We also know that Jordan and Israel have been undergoing some tension in their relationship over the past couple of years, despite the fact that Jordan is one of two Arab countries to have a formal peace treaty with Israel. Where does this discussion of the Jordanian option fit into the current tensions between Israel and Jordan? You're absolutely right in describing the situation, and I will only, only add one layer to it. The security coordination between, and it goes beyond coordination, the security cooperation between Israel and Jordan uh, defies the imagination. Uh, as a matter of fact, Israel's security border is not the border between the West Bank and Jordan. It is hundreds of miles to the east. It's the border between Jordan and Iraq. That is to say the entire Jordanian landmass which is huge, uh, is Israel's strategic depth. Uh, what we are able to do in detection, early warning, and intercepting hostile forces if necessary on the ground and in the air uh, in the Jordanian space is quite dramatic. All of that might be jeopardized if Israel is not careful in pursuing policies that are so sensitive to the Jordanian regime and the Jordanian street. The talk about Jordan is Palestine. The talk about an unilateral annexation in the West Bank, which basically shuts the door on a negotiated agreement in a viable Palestinian state. All that causes alarm in Jordan. And at least in the study of commanders for Israel security, of the potential ramifications of annexation, unilateral annexation, uh, we reached the conclusion that the Hashemite, we, we may force the Hashemite kingdom, the King Abdullah, to weigh against each other regime stability and security cooperation with Israel. It's not that he underestimates the importance of security 
coordination with us to regime stability. But if his street is going to go wild in the wake of an irresponsible Israeli move, he may have no choice but to sacrifice security coordination lest it leaks and he's perceived as a traitor. So what we are trying to preach to the Israeli government is hold your horses, take a deep look into the consequences of what you think is a risk-free proposition, going to the Knesset, passing an annexation law of the Jordan Valley, as is now being discussed, may, may trigger a chain reaction beyond our control, where our important cooperation with Jordan and the peace treaty itself might, might be the victims of. So the Jordanian option isn't viable anymore, and you've mentioned some things Israel should not do to make the situation worse, like annexation. What can Israel and Jordan do proactively to improve their relationship? If I may just add one more point of friction, which has proven very dangerous to the bilateral, the very damaging to the bilateral relations, it's Temple Mount. Any Israeli change of the status quo on the Mount, which triggers reaction in the Arab and Muslim world, uh, is something that causes great concern uh, in Jordan. And we already had situations where they withdrew their ambassador, where they faced vote of uh, majority in their parliament, calling upon uh, the government to terminate the peace treaty and so on. What is missing in the equation are primarily two things. One, a strategic dialogue between Israel and Jordan. We don't have it at the moment. Uh, at best, we do have tactical uh, discussions, meetings of security experts on the two sides, or security officials, I should say, of the two sides, uh, discussing specific issues, specific concerns, specific areas of cooperation, but a broad analysis of how do we view the region, how do we view, view each other's specific uh, strategic interests, how do we uh, manage situations where our strategic interests are, are not in concert, are in conflict. How do, you, how do we agree to disagree and, and conduct ourselves in ways that are not damaging to the other? That is one thing. That is. The second is a completely different Israeli approach to the West Bank and Gaza, one that strengthens the Palestinian Authority and weakens Hamas, one that changes the dynamics on the ground from ever-growing, creeping annexation, ever-growing friction between Israeli settlers and Palestinian population in the West Bank, something that signals that even though conditions at the moment may not be right for a two-state solution anytime soon, still the conflict and the, the road to a solution can be managed in a much more constructive way. Jordan will have a lot to contribute uh, to that kind of an effort once Israel embraces that kind of a strategy. Jordan can also help uh, in bring into the picture its three other partners in the so-called Arab Quartet, which are Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, into supporting that kind of a, a policy uh, by bringing resources to the Palestinian Authority, by bringing expertise to the Palestinian Authority to develop its economy, to develop its institutions, to bring about more transparency and accountability in its governance, and, and so on. So a strategic dialogue on the one hand and a change of Israeli policy on the ground on the other can do miracles to improve the relations between the two countries. 
all sound recommendations. And really, I want to stress just putting on my my other hat as one of the, the authors of this study where we evaluated the Jordanian option, what, what you mentioned, Nimrod, about there being people close to the prime minister who are supporting this. We spoke to some of those people, and this is something that we could see pursued to the great detriment of U.S. interests in the region of Israeli security. And so thank you for joining us and providing a clear picture of what this Jordanian option really means. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. As always, please rate and review our podcast wherever you're listening to it. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you didn't enjoy it, you are completely relieved of that obligation to review us. You can read the new Israel Policy Forum study in search of a viable option where we evaluate the Jordanian option and six other models or outcomes for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on our website at ipf.li forward slash new study. And just some brief announcements. For young professionals, we encourage you to apply for the IPF Atid Summer 2020 delegation. The deadline for applications has been moved up to March 25th, and you can apply on our website at ipf.li forward slash Atid 2020. That's the numbers 2020. And I just want to add that Israel Policy Forum is continuing to monitor the coronavirus situation nationwide, and we will keep you updated in all of our communications as to any ways that it impacts our program going forward in the coming weeks and months. But it is completely safe and sanitary to tune in and listen to our podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on our next episode. 